When you make everything dependent on the identity of the person, what you lose is the ability to distinguish between arguments within that identity group. To do that, you need to go back to the individual. You need that dose of liberalism in these debates. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. Today, I'm talking to a fellow journalist, and it was an absolute treat to meet him. That's Ian Dunt. Now, if you follow UK politics, if you live in the UK, you've probably heard him. He's a fairly visible political journalist. He's the co-host of the podcast The Romaniacs, now called Oh God, What Now?, and the editor of politics.co.uk. He's also the author of a wonderful little book, and that's what we're talking about today. Actually, not that little, it's about 400 pages, a book called How to Be a Liberal. Now, to my American listeners, a liberal is not a lefty. To my French listeners, a liberal is not a Thatcherite or someone who's into Reaganomics. What a liberal is, well, actually is something that we're going to get into. So please listen to my conversation with Ian Dunt, who it turns out, and completely unrelated to my invitation, is actually also a global citizen because we are everywhere. I read on your Wikipedia page that you were born in Guatemala and raised in Chile. Is that accurate? No, that's wrong. And I didn't so I didn't even know I had a Wikipedia page until <laughs> the other week. And the reason I found that out was because everyone kept on coming up with wrong stuff about my life, which is all there. <laughs> like all the parts are correct, but they're just like in the wrong order and in the wrong place yeah. and, and blah, blah. So I'm, I'm half Guatemalan. My mom's Guatemalan. Um, my dad's English. Um, and I was born in Winchester, and then we went off to live in Chile, and then we went back to Winchester. So that, that's my thing. And the, the, the Wikipedia is bits of that in at various <laughs> points chugged together. Yeah, I thought it wasn't it wasn't particularly sourced, so I thought I should check. I didn't know this, obviously, when I um, invited you. But this podcast is about lives lived across borders. And kind of every, everyone that mm-hmm. comes onto the podcast has this, like, crazy globalist background. So... Um, it's cool that you're you're one of us too. <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels it's odd, you know, because if I think about, I mean, I I would feel very Guatemalan anyway, because we used to go, we we pretty much go every sort of Christmas, and, and the, the family are now quite dispersed, so there's lots in the US and things like that. So you go to different places, but I had enough childhood in Guatemala for it to impact me. But I think honestly, if I hadn't sort of had those early years growing up in Chile, I would weirdly feel less Guatemalan because to me, the sound of Spanish was my first language, right? So the sound of Spanish sounds like home to me in a way that it just wouldn't have any other way. And I think for that, it's a complete coincidence. There was no connection to the fact that my mom's Guatemalan for why we were in Chile at that point. That was to do with my dad's move. But if that hadn't happened, I just think my whole sense of identity would be like subtly, but quite fundamentally different and that's a lot about how just language especially in your very early years especially if it's your first language has like a really mm. core part to forming your identity mm. do you speak it regularly still yeah but it's can i swear <laughs> yeah yeah you know this is this is not the bbc <laughs> okay great yeah no it's my spanish is now quite shit um so it, it improves at certain points i was traveling around chile a while back and there was a period where i wasn't really able to speak any english at all and by the end of that it was it was going all guns blazing, but as soon as you don't use it, and I don't even speak it with my mum, right? Like my mum is more has been in England longer than she was in Guatemala or Belize. She's used to speaking English, so it just degrades. And what's left is like a child Spanish with all the swear words that I've picked up from my cousin. So it's like just this brutal, jagged-edged Spanish 
that, that I have there. It's pretty poor, pretty poor. And I've been trying to improve it recently. Yeah. Are you trying to pass it on? Do you have kids or? No, I don't. But I would, yeah. that, that would matter to me. It's weird how you, you, you can be so certain of that, right? And I can't even really articulate why it would matter so much, but it would matter. It would be one of those things that I would make sure happened. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same. So I, I hear you. All right. Let's talk about the book. I really, I really loved it. I have to say it's the, it's the book I didn't know I needed. Um, well, thanks, Pat. That's lovely. <laughs> I wonder with so much sort of contemporary news to, to write about, um, and, and you do plenty of that, why think, hey, I'm going to go back 400 years and uh, read Descartes again and, and write about that? You know what? I always end up doing that. Like for every, for, for every feature you write, like right now, right? Like I, I'm writing about sort of vaccine procurement programs and things like that. And as soon as you do that, you end very quickly. If you just, the, the, your job as a journalist is to ask the question, why? Basically, just to keep on asking the question why over and over again until you really understand something and can communicate it simply to a reader. And with most things, you keep on just finding yourself, the question why just takes you further back through, you know, law and contractual obligations and policy decisions made. And that was basically what was happening with the liberalism stuff that I wanted to talk about. Trump, Brexit, what's, what's going on in our world right now. And once you do that, if you start asking questions why, like why do we have a scenario where you don't attack the judiciary, you know, why, why, where you don't have a president that attacks the judiciary, where you don't have a prime minister that can just cancel parliament. That starts leading you to, well, we separate powers and we separate powers because it's the best way of controlling and preventing um, tyranny. And once you ask that question, you're in the English Civil War. You know, you've, you've already gone back 400 years and it just seems like to tell that story, to describe what it is that's getting shattered, what it is that's being sort of vandalized, you it's a 400 year story. And so you end up just going very far back. So really the first half of the book, first two thirds of the book turns into this kind of historical narrative and only got to the bit that I wanted to talk about, which is Trump and Brexit, <laughs> like right at the very end. But hopefully that has a bit more force by virtue of showing what it is that they're actually destroying. How'd you pick that starting point? Did you ever think, oh, let's go back even further? Yeah, you can, right? So, you, I mean, you could. You, Kant is the guy that really misses out on this book because he's not mentioned apart from in an apology that I make towards the back saying, I am aware that, you know, there, there is a very strong argument for why Kant should be in this book. Um, and obviously you can go back. The truth is, it, it, like all questions, you go back to the ancient Greeks if you really want to go back to the beginning of all of this stuff. And I fucking, I just can't be... I, I just think that really does take you very far back. And it's not clear that they're thinking of terms like the individual in anything like the same way. You bring up a lot of confusion there. And the truth is, with most of our politics, and this would apply to, to many other forms of thought, you, you are starting in the scientific revolution. You're starting in this point where sort of, you know, people like Galileo, people like Descartes um, are fundamentally challenging the way that we gain knowledge about the world of saying, well, actually, it's not really enough just to take it from the church. You know, we actually are going to apply an independent mind to the world on the basis of reason and evidence. And that is, the, I mean, it was probably the greatest revolution in human thought in the history of our species. And certainly, I think everything ends up going back to that moment. And the kind of units these units of thought that just get dredged up that come up shiny new and pretty much everyone that dredges them up underestimates the amount of sort of chaos that they're about to unleash right they sort of think oh i can control this this whole idea of reason and the individual i can just you know control it and put on these layers here and these layers here and then it won't be too much trouble but in actual fact once you get that thing up it just explodes and shatters 
the existing structure of authority. So ultimately, with all of these questions, you either start with the ancient Greeks, which you could kind of do, but I don't know how, I don't know really how meaningful that is, or you start with the scientific revolution. It is pretty stunning how shattering those those few pages are. I think if there's ever been something resembling a religious revelation in my life, it was when I was 18 years old and I read the uh, the discourse, the Descartes, and I, and oh, wow. I understood the Cogito and I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, okay, I get it now. Because, <laughs> you know, in, in, um, in France, they make every high school senior take philosophy. And it's kind of a rite of passage that everyone is completely lost and has no idea and takes this class because they have to and just models through. And um, and a few weeks into the class, it was just that moment where we read Descartes and I was finally like, oh, I think I understand what's going on here. So so oh, I love wow, that you started so nice. with, with those pages because they are really, really powerful pages. Um. Maybe we should define some terms because you, you know, the, the book is how to be a liberal. And uh, when I was growing up in France, a liberal was uh, a selfish right wing person, who, <laughs> uh, you know, no such thing as society kind of kind of vibe. And then I moved to the U.S. and it was, you know, crazy cultural Marxists on the left. And so it feels like it's always an insult <laughs> and it never means the same thing. <laughs> So how how do you define what's a liberal? So for me, a liberal is um, someone who believes in the freedom of the individual. And you can go, the truth is, none of these categorizations are false, right? You can be a liberal in the, that French abusive mode that you were talking about. You can become really quite right wing um, economically, right? I'm not talking about the rest of politics. I'm just talking about economics, right? You can go to a position where you just say, look, everyone gets to keep their own stuff. Tax isn't, you know, really tolerable, um, and we're going to have a very unequal society. Or you can go to a place where you say, well, exactly how much freedom does, how, you know, how much privacy does a homeless person have? You know, how much freedom does someone have to explore their personality and their life if they're constantly in insecure work, if they're constantly in insecure housing? And therefore, we are going to have to tax people, wealthy people, more in order to improve the situation for the individuals who have a harder time of it. That then takes you to a more left-wing position. The place, there are places you can't go, obviously. It's basically fascism on the one side, communism on the other, where you lose the individual completely. And it becomes either about the racial block or it becomes about the class block as a homogenous element of humanity. But ultimately, liberalism does give you a tremendous amount of leeway on the economics. And I think that's where you get this thing that it's more often used as an insult than a badge of approval. Um, you mentioned exactly the situation in the US and France. I mean, in the UK, I think you get a bit of both, right? So you get this attacks from the right wing going, oh, what liberals really want is, you know, you know, men to be wearing women's clothing and hijabs everywhere and, and blah, blah, which, by the way, is correct. That is what we want. We want people to do whatever <laughs> they damn well please. That is what we want. And then you get the attacks from the left. You see it a lot in sort of Corbyn sporting left in the UK at the moment, which will be attacking sort of liberals as you know, laissez-faire, kind of Thatcher, Milton Friedman, don't care about the poor, you know, spitting on homeless people in the street kind of people. Um, and what really what that is, is just taking the side of liberalism that you don't like and, and applying your criticism to it. And the truth is, liberalism doesn't tell you what to think. It tells you how to think. It tells you what is the primary moral unit in life. And that is the freedom of the individual. Where you go from that, the conclusions that you come to on that basis, that's up to you. It doesn't really... It doesn't hand down stone tablets. It doesn't really have sort of political leaders 
you know, that we're going to put in the mausoleum somewhere. It's for free thinkers. It's for people who will think for themselves. And on that basis, they come to a wide, very, very wide variety of conclusions as to where its principles lead to. And so that's where you you connect um, fascism and, and communism and as just being kind of two sides of the same coin of negating the individual. Oh, yeah, yeah. They say they're enemies, but they're really not. They're, they're really pretty similar. And in both cases, what you do is you do just take this unit. I mean, for the Nazis, it was race leadership. Um, uh, and for the Soviets, it was class leadership. And you just submerge the individual within it into a homogenous mass of people. And, and you see, if you look at the way that they approach schooling from a very young age, it's almost identical. Um, very, very similar approaches towards it. If you look at the way that they thought of social control, of the extent to which thoughts and activity had to be controlled, because it either did or didn't correspond to their idea of what the race or the class required, they were very, again, very, very similar. And you would see again, I mean, in a more, uh, in a in a more terrible way on the Nazi side, although not in terms of body count, but just in terms of perniciousness and morality, the way that war effectively radicalized both of those regimes. I mean, they were terrible beforehand, but once war started, they had an opportunity to experiment in ways that they just didn't have before. So you can look at the, the German camp system and you look at the gulag system under the Soviet regime. And again, there are, there are differences, much more regimented on the German side, much more chaotic and amorphous on the Soviet side. But again, you see very, very similar ideas of society because in both cases, they want to just stamp humans into one concrete block without any real personality without anything that divides them without the eccentricities and the things that make you human which is your individuality you know the person that you are as one rather than what you share with society or the people that we say you're like um outside of yourself so yeah they are they are two sides of the same coin and i say it begrudgingly because i think you know when you come to to me, morally, if, if I meet a communist, I do not feel anything like the same sort of hatred towards them as I do towards a fascist. I understand, especially many people I know that come to communism, come to from a concern about inequality, and it comes from a much better place than you could ever come uh, to by approaching things from a fascist perspective. But nevertheless, the moment that you give up on the individual, you authorize these abuses, the murder, the torture, the homogenization of humankind. And in both cases, that is what happens when liberalism fails. So you have a, a movement in liberalism that is very much focused on the, on the liberty of the individual. And it has somehow managed to ignore most individuals uh, in need, in, most in need of freedom, right? When you're looking at um, black people and enslaved people, especially when you're looking at women and LGBTQ, how did, how do we square that circle? Like, how did liberalism have such a blind spot there? Yeah, yeah, and this, so this is like a core part of the story. I mean, that that's a storyline in the book that really starts with the sort of English Civil War. I mean, you could argue it starts earlier with Descartes, who seemed broadly unaware that women existed in any capacity <laughs> um, but you know apart from when he impregnated the, the woman that worked in his house that was the we only used, time we used realized. to that with uh, with french intellectuals but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's not necessarily the reputation that they have here <laughs> um so you you get this moment where um over and over you have documents being published for instance in the french revolution right the rights of man and they are literally the rights of man they are for men. There is not, and that is not a debate that takes place at that time. No one even says it, right? Because it's beyond comprehension that right. women would ever be included. In you anything. don't even need to mention that women are excluded. It's, it's a given. 
Right, exactly, yeah. In, in, a, in a sense, like the, the, the Constitution, the US Constitution, which is a genius document on the separation of powers and a crucial moment in liberalism, but also entrenches slavery. In a sense, that's almost less pernicious because at least it recognizes what it is doing. You know, the, the danger with these previous documents is they literally, women are just simply not even mentioned. Um, and that comes down to an idea, a really pernicious idea. It's the great tragedy of liberal history, which is called the community of the free. And that's the, yes, liberalism for these guys, right? But, but not for these guys over here, right? And, uh, uh, you know, in the US at that period, you would include sort of Native Americans in that. You would, many, many categories that you, would, that you would include, and we have throughout history. Um, and that, I think, comes from a failure of imagination, a failure to truly commit to the idea of the individual. Like, how can it be right that in, in the 1800s, in um, a big event, so dur during the American uh, Civil War, in, the, in Britain, most liberals were on the side of the South, not the North. You know, it seems incomprehensible that you would not realize that if you say, I believe in the freedom of the individual, and on one side there is slavery, which outside of murder is the greatest eradication of the freedom of the individual that can be conceived of by the human brain, that people would come to that conclusion. The only reason they did was because they didn't really consider black people to be actual humans. They didn't really consider them to be capable of individual individualism, to be part of that moral category. But what you get throughout history starting in really the Victorian period with Harriet Taylor and John Stuart Mill when they start applying liberal principles to women and what has been done to women and doing it in a liberal way. That's the core part of it, not in a separate way. They do it as liberals. If these are the principles, then exactly what the fuck is going on over here if, if this is the kind of treatment of people that we're allowing. And expanding through race and predominantly in the 60s, in the 1960s, where you really see huge advances um, in gender and race and sexuality more in the sort of 80s, 90s. Um, where we get to where we are now, but that doesn't, it's not the end of the story because that original failure has been there in liberalism in recent years, I think, which is a failure to listen. Like you say you care about the freedom of the individual, right? So, and what, what are the freedoms that we end up talking about? Freedom of speech, you know, freedom of election, the, the standard freedoms that we imagine. You don't think about uh, racial discrimination uh, from someone uh, trying to get a job or sexual harassment in the workplace if you happen to be, typically speaking, a middle-class, straight, white guy. Like, very often, they have not used the imagination. They have not spoken enough to people to uncover the limitations on freedom that they have. And where that's led to is, I think, this separation on the left between liberals and social justice activists who are just saying, well, you've just, you just ignored us for a very long time. So don't expect us now to start believing that you are the great saviors of, of wherever. So a lot of the a part of the book is of saying, you, it is not as if this ended in the 1960s with, you know, Martin Luther King and that, that, that tragedy is over now. This is a problem that liberals always have again and again is they show insufficient imagination, insufficient empathy, and they don't listen enough to people in various situations to discover the restrictions on their freedoms, which they must by virtue of the principles that they espouse. And if there is a future for liberalism, and at the moment we're in battle of our lives, we're in an existential threat against liberalism, it is by virtue of finding the radical liberalism that listens to marginalized people, to oppressed people, to people who are discriminated against, to people who are stacked at the bottom of an economic system, and exploring in a really aggressive way how to improve the freedom in their lives. Sorry, that was an incredibly long answer, but it was a big no, question. no, no. It was a fascinating answer. Uh, but but you touched on that that idea that um, 
which I'm, I'm trying to put into words, but but still mulling, which is that idea that, yeah, especially in the younger generations now and in, in people fighting for the rights of women and non-binary people or, or um, people of color, there's this embrace of identity politics, which are not Enlightenment liberalism. It's something else, right? How do these two connect? Do they connect? Is identity politics a threat to liberalism or is it a Mm-hmm. A subgenre of it. I don't know. I'm trying to. No, no. So it's and that, look, this stuff is is hard. I think it's hard for people. It's, it's hard for us all to morally work it out. Um, it is both a threat and a gift. I think. So the the gift is that you're being explicitly stated to you. You need to listen, and part of that is just the idea of, of standpoint theory. Just imagine partly your ability to process information about the world is dependent on who you are and the experiences that you have had, okay? And it's not enough to just say, oh, of course, I have infinite power to imagine myself in other scenarios. So I can presume what, you know, a black woman of 70 years old in this completely different community would understand. No, you have to listen. That lesson needs to be taken on board by liberalism. But the split um, with that part of the left, I think also has a damaging impact on identity politics, which has ended up falling into that old, old trap of homogenizing groups. So for instance, there was an exhibit at the Barbican a few years back um, in which uh, a series of black actors were sort of put in stances as if it was a sort of museum. And it was an anti-racist artistic um, uh, show, which was eventually closed down because of protests. And in the debate afterwards, in a TV debate, um, one of the acts, you know, people were told, well, you know, black voices are telling you, black voices are telling you that this show cannot go on. When one of the black actors came out to say, well, I'm part of this show and I believe in this show, they were told black actors, black artists do not have the authority to decide this. So suddenly you see, when you make everything dependent on the identity of the person, what you lose is the ability to distinguish between arguments within that identity group. To do that, you need to go back to the individual. You need that dose of liberalism in these debates so that you make sure that people are not silenced within the group that they belong to, whether that's because of their sex or because of their race or because of any other identifying characteristic. Many of the debates that we see now, you look at things like cultural appropriation, and you look at a variety of other debates, and you see an insufficient complexity to the categories, as if all people who are black would think this way, as if all people who are Latin would think this way. And that is simply not true. In fact, a lot of the time what we find is we find actually quite conservative views within marginalized groups, be that by sex or be that by race. Now, those voices, I might not even agree, but they have a right to be heard and not to be spoken over by activists and academics who claim to be speaking in their own best interests. So again, the rupture is the problem. Liberalism has a lot to learn from these movements, and these movements have a lot to learn from liberalism. And if we can hopefully get them talking rather than screaming abuse at one another, we might actually be in a better position than we are right now. Hmm. Probably don't want to do that on social media then. (laughs) No, no, it's very unfashionable now, I know. (laughs) Hey, it's Isabel. Don't go away. This is just a super quick ad break. I want to talk to you about Borderline membership. Borderline is pretty much my full-time job. It's 100% independent and 100% funded by you, its readers and listeners. If you're enjoying this work, if you want to see more of it, please consider supporting it monetarily and becoming a member. Borderline members get every episode 48 hours early, often in a longer version with interesting things saved from the cutting room floor. To join, simply sign up for the newsletter on Substack and choose the paid subscription option. 
go to join.borderlinepod.com. Again, that's join.borderlinepod.com. And thank you. Now back to our episode. You start the book with um, the lies that of, of nationalism, and it struck me that a lot of them are things that have been so repeated that even people who oppose these ideas have kind of accepted them as the basis of the debate. And one of them is the people versus the elite. Mm-hmm. And and you start like on page one with like, that does not exist. What do you mean mm. by that? Yeah, well, the, these categories just don't exist. I mean, the, I mean, most importantly, there's no such thing as the people. It just doesn't, there is no category. And, and instinctively in their heart, everyone knows this, right? Because no one goes around thinking, I am the people. It doesn't make any sense. You are an individual and you, we have a system of democracy, a product of liberalism, that means that by consent, governments are formed. And we arrange that by the parties that have the most votes. We can arrange that in various ways, you know, by proportional representation or first past the post, but the principle is there. That does not make, mean that you have exactly the same interests as the other people that voted in one way or that you are exactly like them or that there is one will to the way that you think. There is no one will. We all have different interests and eccentricities and values. So throughout history, when you see people use this phrase, the will of the people, it's usually what gets said just before an awful lot of people get killed. The people that got killed are the ones who didn't count for the will of the people. You know, And there are two categories. They're either the foreign enemy or they are the internal traitor, You know, undermining the country from, from within. Um, you see it in that book. The incredible thing is it popped up as soon as you start researching history. The word of the people is there all the way through, you know, starts in the English Civil War. It's there in the French Revolution, continues on. It's it's used explicitly by the Soviets and the Nazis over and over. This phrase is there. And what it really means, what it really always turns into is the will of the leader. And you will notice, you know, let's take like the early years of Brexit, right, where you look at the the voting um, ideals of Leave voters, people that voted for Brexit, were really quite mixed. Like a lot of them were very comfortable with immigration. Some wanted to stay in the single market. Some others were really, really opposed to immigration. They wanted a different relationship. Some wanted a customs union. They wanted trade to continue as normal, but they wanted to pull out of the politics. Lots of different interpretations. Once Theresa May gets there, the will of the people, as it was used, just meant whatever her policy agenda was, right? Whatever she thought at that moment was most convenient for her, that was the will of the people. And everyone else who didn't agree with it was a traitor or an enemy of the people or whatever else mm-hmm. they were branded as. That's the same dynamic for hundreds of years. Whenever that phrase gets used, that is the ending of it. And the reason for that is there is no such thing as the people. There's just the endless, endless multiplicities of our intentions and our interests. And the same is true of the elite. There are lots of different kinds of um, sort of financial or cultural or political leadership. There is no one elite, no great shadowy force that controls things. In fact, the world is irreducibly complex and made up of lots of different forces that sometimes act against each other and sometimes work in parallel. When people talk about the elite, typically what they're doing is trying to dress up that complexity in a very, very simple language that can be used to try and find an enemy and an excuse for their own inadequacies. You would see that in France, for instance, against Jewish people during the Dreyfus affair, where exactly the same kind of language was used in the name of anti-Semitism. And you see it again by any nationalist now, as they all do, who talk about the elite, whether it's Viktor Orban, um, whether it's um, uh, whether it's Boris Johnson, whether it's Donald Trump. Um, and you will find the extraordinary part of it is 
they're always in fucking power when they say it. Like they, they are the political leader. <laughs> they are about the elite. The elite. <laughs> it's just an incredible sight, and yet people still fall for it somehow. Hmm. But they fall for it because we have that need to to form a group, some kind of tribe, however imperfect the boundaries of it are, right? And so I wonder if that's not how liberalism fails is in is in refusing that notion and and i don't know that you win elections as a collection of individuals with different needs right right yeah, yeah exactly so this is and this is the problem i mean you're spot on this is the problem that has just has tortured liberalism for hundreds of years which is that people feel the need to to have identity and probably the two chief thinkers on this were george orwell and isaiah Berlin. you know the two great liberals that grappled with it and they came up with solutions that were ultimately really simple. And it still baffles me that people can't see them, but they can't see them. Because even now, if you look in Britain, we're having this debate from liberals and, and left-wingers over the flag. And is it okay to light the flag? And essentially what I think a pointless debate. So I was, essentially, if you care about the individual, you will care about what the individual believes in and how they like to associate themselves and what matters to them, their passions. And over and over in human history, we find that people do have a sense of belonging a yearning to belong. Now that can be expressed in different ways. In our period, typically it's expressed through patriotism, but also of course, you know, your football team and, you know, your local city and for some people their continent, there, there are various ways. So our key is belonging matters insofar as it matters to the individual. Of course it's expressed and it's part of your identity. It is for me, you know, Latin America is part of my identity. Being a Londoner is part of my identity. Being British is, and being European. These matter to me. It would be absurd for someone to claim to represent me without being able to speak to them or without showing some kind of affection for the same things. And yet at the same time, that stops the moment that it infringes on the individual. If we say to people, the only way to be British is to do the following things and any other way of doing it means that you're no longer British, that is not communicating the reasons why one would believe in belonging in the first place. The moment that we stop the individual from doing anything on the basis of their belonging, we have broken the basis upon which they could believe in it in the first place. That crucial lesson is there in liberalism, but it's complex and it's nuanced. And it tends to speak to people who are anyway just a little bit uncomfortable with where this whole thing goes. But when you dig to the heart of it, there is no contradiction there, except the one which we have mistakenly projected onto it. Hmm. That's something that, that really resonates with me. I feel like every time I express in France something that differs from the norm, I get, oh, you've been Americanized. Oh, oh, wow. oh you're really you're really British now, aren't you? <laughs> you know, like every time that you're you're never, you know, you never quite get to belong a hundred percent to whatever group that you're a part of as as soon as you express something that appears influenced. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a there's a kind of like a, there's always like this sort of whisper of loneliness to um, anyone that's in a sort of like an immigrant family. Yes. Which is that bit of like, you're never quite fit. Once you've lived somewhere else, you can never quite fit back home. Even if you go there and, you know, do all this stuff, you will never quite fit back home. And yet there's always that bit that you're just slightly different from the people in the place that you've gone to. And I think for most people, that whisper of loneliness will never be there. It's a core part of like the immigrant experience. Whisper of loneliness is a is a perfect way to to express it. Yes, it's essentially. I think it's the it's the red thread throughout. Hundred percent of my interviews on this podcast is oh, wow. kind of everyone who you know has a one foot in in a different place um, uh, feels that that thing that 
is a little bit broken that you can't, you know, yeah, quite fit in the puzzle anymore. Well, we have that now more than ever, right? Because of, you know, board, we're in a period where borders are going up. I mean, anyway, that was the case, but COVID has really brought that home. And you look at the coverage mm-hmm. of the quarantine, which, it, by the way, is, I think would be the right policy. It's quarantine on countries. I, I think that's been demonstrated. But all the coverage in the newspapers is all about uh, holiday makers, <sighs> how it's going to affect your holiday to Spain. And you're like, I mean, does anyone care that millions of people are separated from their partner, from their family, you know, and they don't even know when that will change. And yet they're completely written out of the story at the moment. I, uh, that's funny you say that because I literally, I have an op-ed on this that I'm trying to place right now, which is exactly that. It's just, if I see one more headlines about holidays canceled, <laughs> I'm going to scream <laughs> because right now, literally, um, the UK won't let me leave and France won't let me enter. Yeah. And, um, it's a, it's a few hours drive to my parents and it is an impassable wall right now. Yeah. Um, and it just seems completely ignored. So yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, speaking of, I want to talk about the, the the past year to conclude because we've just been through a very illiberal time. Um, with you know, in the name of public health and for very valid reasons, um, and we're seeing kind of a we're jumbling where you see um, people on the side of nationalism and post truth claim to defend individual liberties by opposing lockdowns, yeah. and you see the progressive opposition demanding tighter borders it just seems just all of it very bizarre and um and then you see governments and we've just seen in the uk seem very keen to hold on to some of those powers that they've got in the last year and some of those limitations of freedom are you concerned are you worried for liberalism coming out of the pandemic and and how do we hold on to it well, you see, this whole thing, rely, I mean, just being able to think clearly about this stuff re- relies on one of the core sort of liberal ideas, which is just taking things in a case-by-case basis where you recognize the complexity of them, right? When liberalism says it cares about the freedom of the individual, that freedom stops where you interfere with another individual's freedom. So when we talk about a pandemic, I mean, the, the most sort of um, sophisticated uh, description of this is Harriet Taylor and John Stuart Mill's harm principle. Um, we're talking about a pandemic, you say, yeah, in any normal time, you got to do whatever the hell you damn well please. If your actions can contribute to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of vulnerable people, then there is a basis on on the basis of individual freedom in order to put restrictions on people's social lives. And that's where we have been right now. And I think when the the populists come out, I mean, there's a lot of, for a lot of populists, this and the anti-green agenda are very, they think, very rich areas of electoral advancement. So I, I would suggest, without being too cynical, <laughs> that they are being motivated predominantly by that rather than they are any of their core convictions. When they're saying this stuff, it's just an inadequate understanding of what individual freedom entails. In the same way that I don't have the individual freedom to chuck rocks at people's heads, you also have to think in a pandemic about controlling behavior for that. Now, that does not mean that governments will not try and use the powers that they have suddenly granted themselves for reasons that go well above the pandemic. And at the moment, there are reports coming in um, about Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, trying to see whether she can keep some of these anti-protest laws, because basically, because she doesn't like Black Lives Matter's protests. I mean, it's no more complicated than that. She doesn't like BLM, and she wants to clamp down on it. it it's as simple as that. So you, you grant governments these powers on a short basis, um, in a scrutinized basis at moments of emergency, as you would during a war. But you do it on the basis that you need to be pretty fucking vigilant about making sure that you get those powers back from government when it's over. And instead, what I've seen mostly online recently is like, of course, this was always the plan. It was all just a ploy in order. No, it wasn't. 
the stuff was there to control a pandemic. But that does not mean that we don't worry about it, that we're not vigilant about it, especially at this moment when governments and police will just be tempted to see how much of that power they can keep. The battle will be on to make sure that they are unable to do that. And liberals are well-placed to do it because they haven't gone completely insane drinking the Kool-Aid, thinking that there's some grand conspiracy. In fact, this is just the typical incentives of government and the reasons that we always hold government to a very, very high degree of aggressive scrutiny, because this is the kind of shit they do. Mm-hmm. We'll remain vigilant. Thank you so much, <laughs> Ian. This was, this was really interesting. Very glad uh, we did this. Thanks for having me. Now. How to Be a Liberal, which I really warmly recommend, is published in hardback right now by Cambry Press in the UK, a wonderful little independent nonfiction publisher. You should also easily find it in digital formats and Kindle outside the UK. You can hear Ian Dunn on his podcast, Oh God, What Now?, and sometimes on The Bunker as well, and read his work at politics.co.uk and on Twitter at Ian Dunn. If you enjoy Borderline, please do me a favor and rate and review it in your favorite podcasting app, especially if that's Apple Podcasts. Now, I have no idea whether that actually does anything to the algorithms, but I know it really makes my day when I read one. And please share it. I can spend my day on social media, but the truth is it has very little impact, especially compared to word of mouth. So if you enjoy Borderline, please share it around you and help me grow this audience. We're at a bit of a plateau right now. I'd love to get this to more people. On borderlinepod.com, you can subscribe to the newsletter and you'll get transcripts, you'll get interviews in a shorter edited written format, you'll get more content, more information, and most importantly, you'll get the option of a paid membership, which is a subscription that helps me continue to make Borderline and hopefully even at some point pay the rent, but mainly pay the hosting bills for the podcast at this point. Thank you so much for listening, for your continued support. Welcome and thank you this week to new members Wendy Kendall and an anonymous donor. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal. Music is by Offshain. Borderline is a One Lane Bridge production. It may sound very selfish, but it doesn't come from a selfish place. But when COVID happened, and you know, obviously... So many people in the world couldn't travel. So many people in the world couldn't be with their loved ones. And you could see how upset, angry everyone is. I think there was a moment that I thought, oh, a lot more people can really understand my story now. Next week on Borderline.